Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you are listening to the Brown History Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the life and works of Iqbal Ahmed with our guest today, Stuart Shar. Not only did Mr. Stuart write the biography of Iqbal Ahmed called Critical Outsider in a Turbulent Age, but he and Iqbal were very close friends. If you don't know who Iqbal Ahmed is, he is by far one of the greatest thinkers to come out of South Asia, ever. He was a professor, a political scientist, and a peace activist. He stood up for oppressed people anywhere, even if it cost him greatly. His lectures and articles could be found all over the internet, which I recommend that everybody check out. For the audio, there's some noise in the background, some wind noise, but it just comes and goes at times. Sorry about that. Anyways, I really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you want to help out i know i do this every episode but it's important if you want to help out you could be a patron or you could buy merch there's lots of things on the website to buy the website is brownerstreetpodcast.com there's some cool stuff there so check it out and let's begin i'm ready whenever you are sounds good so i initially uh, wanted to talk to you about uh, Iqbal Ahmed. You wrote the book on him, and I wanted to just kind of get an understanding of who he is and, and his journey and, and how he started from a small village in Pakistan to where what he became. I understand you're his, you were a good friend of his, and then we have a lot of other people who are close to him also. So my first question would be, and I know there's a lot of young people who are listening who don't know who he is, who have no understanding of who he is. So my question is kind of a two-part question is, who is he? Who is Iqbal Ahmed? But at the same time, why should anyone be interested in him? And why is he important? Well, let me start with where we met. Um, We were both graduate students at Princeton University in the Middle East program. And the program was small and we were in the same Arabic class. It started out with four people. Uh, An Indian fellow dropped out very fast. And then a Syrian American dropped out after six months. So Ekbal and I, were the two students left in the Arabic class. And Ekbal had an extraordinary poetic memory. He would read a poem once and he would memorize it just by uh, reading it over. And he would recite poetry all the time. And he found it difficult to get into Arabic, which is a difficult language. He knew Persian already, which he had studied in Pakistan, in India, before it became Pakistan. And he knew Urdu, of course. And there were a lot of Arabic loan words in both of those languages, so that that part was easy in the script was no problem whatsoever for him, but the grammar drove him crazy and the synonyms uh, just were non-ending. There are 98 words for camel, for example, depending on what its position is. And you have to know many of these synonyms in order to master the language. And Ekbal was lost at the beginning as I was. And then he went to the Firestone Library at Princeton, and he found a poem which summarized Arabic grammar. And he memorized the poem right on sight. 
And he came running to me and he said, I got it, I got it. I said, what do you have? He said, I know Arabic now. And from that point on, he flew through the language. It was very easy once he got that poem down by heart, which he memorized on site. Uh, and that was Ekbal. He was filled with surprises. And um, he was quite, quite brilliant. Um, we spent six years at Princeton and the experience radicalized him. He came into Princeton as a left of center, well, Pakistani. And uh, the experience at the university made him into a true radical. Uh, he had to confront America in a point in the late 50s, which was just getting over McCarthyism, but a lot of elements of McCarthyism was still there. And he studied political science and uh, became a radical because of it. Uh, it seems strange, this very conservative university radicalized a man uh, which was already already halfway there. It was a strange place. For example, the dominant element of the student body was very Protestant and very elitist. And therefore, I didn't have many friends from among the majority population there. But happily, there were many foreign students, and there were, I could name them, in fact, five working class students at the university. And I gravitated towards them, mainly because I was shut out of the dominant element of the university. Ekbal wasn't. Ekbal was able to cross lines. He had many friends at many different social categories. And many of the faculty loved him, and many of the faculty loved, loved faculty wives adopted him and invited him for teas <laughs> and social gatherings. And he was very popular. Uh, as he matured, he became very, very handsome. He started out as a skinny Pakistani. He put on weight while he was there. And by the early 1960s, he was a very, very handsome man. And many of the faculty wives invited him over for teas and uh, uh, dinners. And he had a whirlwind of a social life there. Uh, and he became very, very popular um, as he became uh, he looked like a Don Juan, in fact, by the time uh, we were graduating in the early 1960s. Uh, he was also quite smart. He read everything. Uh, he spent a lot of time, as, as did most of us, in the Firestone Library, which is one of the best libraries in the world. 
and uh, he used to read Pakistani newspapers, keep up to date. Uh, he lived as most of us did in the library most of the time and devoured everything that came to him. By the time he took his general exams, he was quite well-developed intellectually. He was filled with surprises. You could never tell what he was going to come up with. And he had a terrific sense of humor. We used to laugh all the time. Uh, he told lots of jokes. He was quite well-rounded. He had gone to Foreman Christian College in Pakistan, which became part after independence of uh, Punjab University. And he majored in history and economics. He graduated with honors. He taught a year to military students. And uh, then after graduating from that, after finishing that stint, he went on a rotary scholarship to Occidental College in California, where he studied the American West and especially what happened to Native Americans. And he wrote his thesis on that, his master's thesis, before coming to Princeton University. So that when I met him, he was already well-trained both as a historian and as an econom economic uh, teacher. Um, he majored in political science in Princeton and very quickly was recognized as one of the brightest students. So he goes to, after school, he goes to North Africa and he gets involved in the revolutionary movements there. Can you tell me about his time there and how it affected him? He went to Tunisia to do work on his thesis about labor unions in Tunisia. Originally, he was going to do it about Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Um, ultimately, he came to Morocco. I was living there then doing my own thesis work. He stayed with me for a couple of months. And he asked so many astute questions of the labor union leaders in Morocco that they got so frightened they shut him out so that it was impossible for him to do much work. He found out information that nobody else knew. Um, and it frightened the head of the labor unions, uh, Mahdru Ben Sedik, who closed the elevator of the building where uh, the union was located so that Ekbal could no longer go up to interview labor union leaders uh, in Casablanca. So that after two months of doing research, he found out a great deal. And he wrote about this in an article which appeared in a uh, book on North Africa on labor unions, which is a major piece of 70 pages about North African labor. It's about the only important thing we have on the labor movements in North Africa and up until the early 1960s. 
Uh, he then did a thesis on Tunisian labor. And while he was in Tunisia, he met many important people who were there covering the Algerian revolution. The way it worked was that most journalists could not get into Algeria during the Algerian war, which lasted between 1958 and 1962. So they camped out in Tunisia and covered the war from the neighboring country. Ekbal mm. met most of those journalists who became his close friends. He also met many of the Algerian revolutionary leaders who were living in Tunisia because they could not live in Algeria if they did they would have been arrested and would have disappeared. Did he meet so friends? Did he meet friends, Fanon? Uh, it's a difficult question. Um, many people claim that he did know Fanon. It might have been impossible because Fanon at that point was, when Ekbal arrived in Tunisia, was already in Bethesda, Maryland Hospital with cancer. He had leukemia and he was dying. And Ekbal arrived in Tunisia at the same point that Fanon was in the hospital in Maryland, so that it wasn't possible that Ekbal met him in Paris where he had studied French, so that he would have had meet, met him in Tunisia, but Fanon wasn't there any longer. So it's doubtful that he knew Fanon at that point. We had read everything that Fanon had written in French and had discussed it. Uh, Fanon was an important character within our own lives because uh, he was an original in North African studies and we read everything that he wrote, and he was very important for us. If Ekbal had met Fanon, he would have come running to me and would have told me what <laughs> would have happened there. So True. I doubt if they had met. Maybe it was possible, but I, I just don't think so. It's unimportant because he knew so many other people. Uh, he was friends with most of the leaders in exile of the Algerian Revolution. And they adopted him. He was very, very close to the most important leaders of that revolution. And he learned a great deal from them about how to create a revolution, how to keep it going, and um, the problems of revolutionary leadership. Uh, in that sense, he was totally genuine. He got it from the horse's mouth, and they literally adopted him. They loved him. I went to visit Ekbal in Tunisia uh, in 1962, and uh, by that time, he was the associate director of the uh, International Cultural Center. I spent six months there with him, and he learned administrative skills there, uh, which became important because he later became the director of the Transnational Institute, which was located in Amsterdam. And there I spent three months as well in Amsterdam, 
at the Institute with him so that our lives intersected and I knew a great deal about what he was doing and what was taking place. He went to Palestine after that in the at the end in the end in the late 60s and could you talk about his experience there and his relationship with Yasser Arafat because I think that's a really cool chapter in your book. In New York City, Ekbal became very close friends with Edward Said. <laughs> I don't think Edward needs an introduction. No, no. He's very famous his book on Orientalism and several other publications. Ekbal was Edward's closest friend in New York City. And the both of them set up salons. I often say that there was a Bloomsbury on the Hudson. In effect, there were two Bloomsburys. Bloomsbury was the famous salon that was established around Virginia Woolf, Reiki, many of the literary figures, Virginia Woolf was part of it, within London. And Ekbal and Edward had their own salons. Important people who came to the U.S. from the international left and Palestinians looked both of them up and uh, spent a great deal of time with them. And uh, this is where Ekbal learned his first-hand knowledge of what was going on around the world. All he had to do was stay in his apartment in New York, and people flooded, came to him, and informed him of what was going on in their countries, Mm -hmm. including many Palestinians. And through Edward, he met most of the Palestinian leadership, which led to the trip to the Middle East, one of them, he took many, with Edward, in which he met Yasser Arafat and other Palestinian leaders, and he was welcomed initially with open arms, uh, except that Edward and Ekbal had the habit of being quite honest, and they didn't pull any punches, and they told the Palestinian leadership what they really thought. Ekbal was a strategic master. He had done his homework. He had read a great deal. Uh, and he thought profoundly about military strategy, legal strategy, and how to organize movements. He had learned a great deal about the Algerian Revolution from the horse's mouth, from the leadership of the Algerian Revolution directly in Tunisia when he was living there. So that when he met with Arafat and the other Palestinian leaders, he told them point blank that they could never defeat Israel militarily, that Israel was much too powerful, owned by the Americans, backed by the Americans, and therefore it was useless to do any conventional warfare with Israel since the Palestinians would be completely wiped out. Instead, he offered Arafat and the Palestinian leadership an alternative. And the alternative was to organize mass nonviolent movements, stage mass marches into Israel, which could cause lives, but it would have to be peaceful. And he said, don't even throw rocks, because if you throw rocks, they will shoot on you. And he told them things that the Palestinian leadership 
just could not understand. They were used to, uh, at that point in history, capturing airplanes in the air, and they had not developed any nonviolent techniques. Now, this brings me to another point, because when Iqbal was young, he spent six months with uh, Mahatma Gandhi. His mother and father were close to Gandhi, and there were riots in the place where Iqbal was born, which was Bihar. Uh, it was the most populated region of uh, Muslim India. And Iqbal's mother, because his father had passed away by this time, uh, was friends with Gandhi. And Gandhi came to Bihar because <laughs> there had been communal riots there. And Gandhi was trying to demonstrate that it was possible for Muslims and Hindus to live together. So we organized a children's march through Bihar, and his mother, Ekbal's mother, managed to get Ekbal on that march. And Ekbal talked to me about it. He said that uh, he spent about six months with Gandhi, including time in his ashraf, and Ashraf is the place where Gandhi lived. And he didn't like it there. Uh, he was used to living very well in Muslim India. His family was well off. He ate well. And with Gandhi, all they ate were vegetables. And when he asked if there's any sauce, Gandhi said, here's some lemon, and Ekbal couldn't stand the diet that he was being given there. So that the physical arrangement that he was encountered there, that he encountered there, didn't please him. But he was deeply impressed with Gandhi, which was one important influence on his life. And Gandhi's nonviolence stuck with Ekbal. He became a purveyor of nonviolence when he came to America. And he brought to America Gandhi's ideas of nonviolence, which he incorporated in the anti-war movement that he became one of the leaders of based in New York. The other influence on his life was Tagore the Nobel Prize winning uh, genius, I would say. And Tagore was very, very different from Gandhi, but they were both close friends. And Gandhi, through his contacts with very rich industrialists who loved Gandhi and uh, supported him monetarily, Gandhi used to help support Tagore by putting him in, contacts, in contact with his close, rich patrons, his close, rich friends. And Iqbal himself came in contact with, uh, with Tagore on his deathbed. His family knew Tagore. His family is well-placed. And Iqbal, as a kid, visited Tagore as he was dying with his long beard stretched out over his bed. And there were two important South Asian influences, therefore, on this young kid. The first was Gandhi, and the second was Tagore. And throughout his life, his references were always towards them. 
and his ideas of nonviolence stuck with him throughout his entire life. And when he came to America, and especially in New York, he preached those doctrines of nonviolence and he tried to incorporate them into the anti-Vietnam War movement as well. So that many of the things that happened to him in India as he was growing up and later in Pakistan in his teens were later brought to America and incorporated through him into the anti-war movement. He was very influential, very important, and he was one of the significant leaders there. So that when he met with the Palestinians, he brought many of those ideas that he developed in the anti-war movement in America. He tried to incorporate them into the Palestinian movement. And he did this through the leadership of the Palestinians, whom he met through Edward Said. Uh, the Palestinians did not buy into it at that time. Later, they did. And today, many of the young Palestinians are following nonviolence as a methodology in confronting the Israelis. And I would say Ekbal was largely responsible for that movement, which is now taking place within Palestine. Wow. After that chapter, he goes back into the USA, and then there's this huge chapter of the Harrisburg Seven. Can you give us an, a rough um, description of what happened during the... What is the Harrisburg Seven, basically? Ekbal had spent some time at Cornell University. And there he met Dan Berrigan, who was the poet in residence at Cornell. <clears throat> and they became very close friends. Ekbal, as I said previously, had a poetic memory that was second to none. And Dan Berrigan was a poet. And through poetry, they became very close friends. And Dan was already involved deeply in the nonviolent Catholic left movement. And Ekbal, as a close friend to Dan, met many of the priests and nuns who were involved in the Catholic anti-war movement during the Vietnam War period. And Ekbal went off one evening to a dinner with Elizabeth McAllister and Joseph uh, Yegan, both of whom were Catholic activists in the anti-war movement. And over a dinner, they discussed strategy of how to uh, confront the anti-war movement. And they were also drinking a great deal. And by the uh, mid-evening, they came up with a crazy plan to uh, kidnap Henry Kissinger and take him to a spot and interrogate him and then set him loose. Joe Segan thought this was absolutely crazy. Elizabeth McAllister uh, took it seriously and didn't realize it was a conversation of people who were drinking too much. Yes. 
and wasn't really that serious to begin with. But Elizabeth, who was uh, in close relationship with uh, Phil Berrigan, who was Dan Berrigan's brother, and happened to be in prison uh, for his anti-war work, uh, received a letter from Elizabeth McAllister, and in it, Elizabeth, taking seriously what Ekbal was saying, outlined a plan for uh, kidnapping Henry Kissinger, uh, which she should ne had never done. No. Ekbal later told uh, people that he was on trial with, the only thing you sent into prisons were oranges and never letters because the letters are often open and then they end up in the wrong hands. Uh, anyway, Elizabeth wrote the letters and she used a person who was an FBI, FBI informant to deliver the letter to Phil Berrigan in prison. The letters were opened by the FBI. Uh, the then director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, read them, and he immediately saw the possibility of putting these uh, Catholic radicals on trial and, in good American fashion, bring in a foreigner as well to make it look like a total conspiracy. So wow. ultimately, J. Edgar Hoover charged uh, Catholic nuns and priests plus Iqbal Ahmed with conspiracy to kidnap Henry Kissinger. And then they added another charge, which was blowing up tunnels in Washington because Phil Berrigan, before he went to jail, had gone to Washington to examine tunnels in order to blow up the heating tunnels in parts of Washington, uh, which was never done, by the way. This was just talk. And Hoover saw this as a possibility to break up the Catholic left, which was causing him enormous problems uh, because they were very effective in raising the issues of anti-war and they did many, many anti-war activities, which were getting into a relatively previously safe community, which is now becoming radicalized. The trial was held in Harrisburg, and therefore the group was known as the Harrisburg Eight originally. One was dropped out, and it became the Harrisburg Seven, of which Ekbal was one. They chose, the FBI chose Harrisburg as the venue of the trial because it was quite conservative. They got a conservative judge to preside over the trial. And ultimately, they were exonerated by the jury. I'll speak about that a little later. When the charges came down, uh, I was living in New York City, and I organized a meeting in my apartment. Uh, Julie Diamond Eckball's wife was there as well. And we brought together all of Eckball and Julie's friends living in New York City. And 
out of that meeting became part of a defense committee. The other part was made up of followers of Dan and Phil Berrigan, uh, including uh, nuns in blue jeans and priests who were dealing with the poorest communities in New York City. Uh, the movement around Phil and Dan Berrigan of Catholic priests and nuns uh, was remarkable for me. I had never dealt with any of these people before. And suddenly many of them became my close friends because what happened was that the group that Julie and I formed uh, coming out of my apartment and the initial meeting that took place there, we joined up with the priests and nuns who were around Phil and Dan Berrigan, and we formed a defense committee and very quickly began raising money for the trial. People don't realize it, but justice in America is very expensive. We had to raise about a million dollars for this trial. Wow. And I was the initial treasurer of the committee. Since I was close to Ekbal and I was honest, the, there was no way I could be corrupted. And while I was there, we raised $300,000. And then when the committee moved to Harrisburg, I stopped being the treasurer. I remained in New York because I was teaching at uh, Brooklyn College part of City University. And initially, we got donations from uh, all over the place. Cesar Chavez sent us $1,000. Uh, the author of Catch-22 sent us $1,000. Uh, money was coming in from all places. The left of America was well organized because of the anti-Vietnam War. And therefore, we had a basic constituency. And Ekbal had been very active in the anti-war movement and was close friends to people like Noam Chomsky and Richard Falk, who were two of the major leaders of the anti-war movement. He knew many of the people. And therefore, many of them came forward and offered their support in any way that was possible. And I, as a close friend of Ekbal, uh, became a liaison with many of these people and got to know them quite well. So that very quickly, we set up a defense committee and uh, we had tremendous support from the left movement of America, which was well organized in the 70s because of the anti-war movement, so that we had a natural constituency to reach out to the left in America and even the center of America in order to organize for this trial. And it was quickly realized that we had to reach out to Americans to gain their support in order to win this trial, uh, that it wasn't going to be just within the courtroom that the trial was going to be won, but we had to do a lot of uh, publicity within uh, op-eds of newspapers. Uh, the 
defendants themselves had to go on the road. They had to speak out. They had to talk about the anti-war movement that they were part of and that they had to get public support behind them in order to win this case. Uh, it was much more than just the courtroom trial. And the defendants understood that they had to put themselves out there in order to speak to people. And two of the people of the defendants that were the best speakers and the people that took it upon themselves to go out and speak to the community at large were Ekbal and uh, Elizabeth McAllister, who felt responsible for what she had done in writing those letters and therefore put a great deal of effort into reaching out to the community. And uh, the defense committee, of which I was initially part of, organized many meetings uh, around the country. I used to go around with Julie Diamond's parents uh, who were terrific. And <laughs> we would speak to groups of people in New York City. I went around with Cora Weiss who presented herself as a New York housekeeper, which was far from the truth. She was one of the major anti-war organizers in America. Um, it, it was a tremendous effort. And ultimately, when they went to trial, they had some of the best lawyers in America behind them. Uh, they got, for example, Leonard Boudin, who was the master of conspiracy law. He had been the lawyer of Charlie Chaplin and later became uh, the lawyer of several significant figures in American uh, judicial history. I did some legal research for Letty Boudin, and I was shocked. He knew where all the cases were, and he sent me to the law books exactly where I would find them, and I did. Uh, it was so easy working for him because he knew the law inside out. And it was Boudin who won the case. We had uh, Ramsey Clark, who had been the attorney general on the case as a lawyer, Paul O'Dwyer, who later became the an important figure in a New York politics uh, was on the case as well. But it was Boudin, we found out from a survey of the jurors after the trial was over, that won the case for the defendant. After a two-year trial in Harrisburg, the defendants were acquitted. It was a long, stressful period, and many of them had to go on the road in order to raise money in order to get that million dollars for the trial. The lawyers themselves did not get paid, but we paid their expenses. And legal services in America, no matter even if it's free, are still very, very expensive. And if you don't have money, you can't win. So that most of our work uh, in the defense committee was trying to raise money for the defendants. And they themselves were on the road all the time speaking to groups. And it was a very, very trying period. And then being in Harrisburg itself, which is not a friendly city uh, for anti-war activists, 
was a trial itself. So that was a very stressful period. Right. But it was always already a period where <clears throat> we used the trial to organize the anti-war community and to organize liberal America. And it was a very important period for Ekbal because he learned a great deal and he used what he learned in Princeton and also from his uh, studies in Pakistan to help the defendants to strategize and to win. And he was one of the linchpins in the defense within the Harrisburg community uh, that developed around the trial. After that, he gets more involved with Pakistani politics, with the nation of Pakistan, how and India too, and South Asia. What was his relationship with South Asia now at this point of his life? With what? With South Asia. He had never broken off his relationships with South Asia. Um, while we were in Princeton, he used to drive me crazy because any <sighs> Pakistani that he would meet uh, in Princeton, who was visiting the place, <clears throat> would be invited over for dinner. Ekbal was a gourmet chef. He had learned how to cook, and I benefited from it, from it greatly, as did our <clears throat> triumvirate at Princeton, Mohammed Gassouz from Morocco, who was another brilliant person that gravitated towards us. And um, in the last year at Princeton, uh, Ekbal and I rented an apartment together, and Mohammed was invited as our guest to eat dinners with us every single evening. And we invited over anybody on our list of friends, including any rape any Pakistani or Indian that came into Ekbal's purview so that we were always surrounded by Pakistanis and Indians uh, while Ekbal was in Princeton. He made it his business to go out of his way to be friendly with them and to invite them over and to feed them and to become friends with them. Uh, I think he was always looking to the future and thinking that he was going to go back to Pakistan and that he would have a political career in Pakistan and that he was preparing the groundwork by befriending uh, all the Pakistanis that came into his purview while he was in Princeton. So that it began early. It isn't a question of afterwards that he goes to Pakistan. He always maintained his contacts with Pakistan. While he was in Princeton, he read Pakistani newspapers all the time. He never told anybody about what he was reading, but he spent an enormous amount of time in the library and he devoured everything that came into his grasp including uh, whatever he could get his hands on about Pakistan. And he kept up to date. Um, and he read voraciously. Uh, he didn't let people know he was doing this. It seemed as if it was all effortless, but he devoured everything that came into his grasp. So he began early and then, <clears throat> 
I went with him. Well, he goes back in 1964 or 65 um, to visit his family uh, after having been away for quite some time. And um, he loved being there. Uh, and then I went with him on a trip in 1980, and I've never seen the man as happy as that in my life. He was like a fish returning to water. Uh, and I was amazed at his friends. They were the best people that Pakistan had to offer. Uh, and by that time, Iqbal and I were brothers uh, Ekbal had adopted me without ever saying so. Uh, and uh, through him, I met most of his Pakistani friends. We also went to India, and I met his Indian friends there. They were the best people in the subcontinent. Um, they gravitated to him, and he gravitated to them, uh, so that he had a circle of absolutely remarkable people that he uh, interacted with. And ultimately, he became a guru for young Pakistanis who um, appreciated his intelligence and his strategic thinking. And he got them to think strategically. Most of them were floundering before he arrived there. And he sat down with them and worked out strategies for dealing with Pakistan's major problems. And many of them appreciated what he had to offer. Uh, many people on the uh, Islamic radical movement did not like Iqbal because he was too... Uh, strategic and really saw through them. And he could argue with them because he had studied Islam uh, both in Pakistan and in Princeton. And he knew uh, the corpus. He knew Islam and he loved Islamic civilization. And therefore he came at it as a Muslim and somebody who was not alienated from his culture, but was part of that culture and knew what he was talking about and stood on solid grounds. Was and in Princeton, he had studied Islam and he knew it inside out. And therefore he was able to deal with Islamic radicals and hold his ground. He wasn't afraid of them and he was able to argue with them on their terms and they did not like it. They did not like the idea that a secular person who was imbued with Islam could deal with their territory and really argue with them and make some sense. I know you just mentioned that he's uh, he's secular, but what were uh, Iqbal's religious views? Was he was he uh, practicing Muslim? What was his views on God and the afterlife and prayer, especially near the end of his life? Iqbal was a Muslim culturally. He loved every aspect of Islamic culture. He was imbued with it as a kid. His 
he was surrounded by Islamic culture. Uh, he grew up in a family which was well off. They were landowners. Uh, they lived in very, very good circumstances. They had many retainers. Um, he was a privileged kid. You could even say he grew up as an aristocrat. And he had aristocratic bearings about him uh, that charm people. Islam is more than a religion. Islam is a culture. It's a way of life. And Iqbal was part of that way of life. And he considered himself a Muslim. He never denied it. On his deathbed, uh, this is in my uh, biography, his nephew wanted somebody to stop reading the Quran, which is usual practice when somebody is ill and yeah. somebody is dying. And his nephew said, can we stop her? And Ekbal's retort, without even thinking, was, no, we can't stop her. I'm a Muslim. And he was. Wow. There isn't really any statues or any plaques on Iqbal Ahmed. There, he isn't as a celebrity as Edward Said or Noam Shamsi. How come he isn't as famous as the rest of them? Because he didn't write the uh, blockbuster book, as Edward did, called Orientalism. Right. Um, he had written a book on Henry Kissinger and... Um, there's a long story about how the manuscript disappeared. Uh, so it was never published. Uh, it would have made him very, very important because he had done a lot of work on it. Uh, Ekbal was always busy. Um, his philosophy was that he wanted to reach as many people as possible. And he ultimately thought that the best way of doing this was through newspaper columns. So that when he was in America, he was invited by the New York Times to write op-eds for them for a year. And then later on, he decided that journalism was going to be the best way to reach the largest number of people, which he wanted to do. So that he spent most of his time writing journalistic articles and at the end of the, his life he was publishing them in the Pakistani uh, newspaper Dawn yeah and he felt that this was very important that he wanted to reach as many people as was possible so he never got around to writing the big books that make uh, people celebrities and newspaper articles ultimately disappear uh, many of them were collected in an anthology that Columbia University Press published, uh, which is a remarkable collection of articles, some of which are extraordinarily profound. And um, a collection of articles don't make you famous. Uh, he wanted to, he had a dream of opening up a university in Pakistan. How come that never went through? I would say that Pakistan isn't exactly the most 
uncorrupt country in the world. Mm -hmm. And you have to deal with so much corruption that if you're honest about trying to establish something as significant as a university, it's very difficult to tackle that kind of corruption, especially when it comes from the top and not necessarily from the bottom. Ekbal had been granted land for a university, which became quite controversial. Uh, Madame Bhutto's husband wanted that land and ultimately got the land uh, taken away from Ekbal. Once you don't have land to build a university, it becomes very difficult to get anything established. Ekbal tried to piece together other pieces of land to establish a university, but it was quite, quite difficult to do. And it would have been much, much too expensive to achieve. So that the corruption that was at the heart of the Pakistani government reached Ekbal's university dreams. And ultimately, that corruption destroyed the idea of the university. Um, he did a great deal, raising a great deal of money, but it just wasn't enough. And uh, he had to deal with the uh, corruption that surrounded the Bhutto government, the second Bhutto government. And there was no way he could overcome that as an individual uh, facing down a government. Uh, ultimately, the university failed because of the nature of corruption within the Pakistani society and government. I see. And no, you can't tackle the government. No, not, not even today. It's worse. It's worse, yes. And you know what? In fact, South Asia is probably a lot more worse off than he left it. What do you think his reaction would be to today's current uh, politics and the situation going on around the world? He'd be writing newspaper columns all, every single day uh, describing the corruption both in India and in Pakistan. Iqbal was a very a deep thinker, a very smart guy, and a lot of his writing has to deal with politics and how the way the world works. But I, I wonder at the, you know, in the last years of his life, as you reflected back on his life, did he offer you or anyone any, did he offer any wisdom on how to live a happy, satisfying, good life, you know, on a personal level? What, what were his regrets? What he thought was important for people to know about, about relationships, about religion, about faith, about life itself. And not, not aside from politics, but just like as a, as a personal level. Well, Erpa was a humanist beyond anything. And he loved uh, Muslim culture. Um, his house and apartment was filled with the best rugs that were available, which he picked out himself. Uh, he loved Mughal miniatures. He loved ancient sculptures. There was nothing about the culture which he didn't enjoy. And beyond anything, uh, poetry, he was the best friends with Fez Ahmed Fez, one of the great poets 
of Pakistan and probably one of the 10 great poets in the world. He, wherever there was a poet, he invited them for dinner. Did he have really, any regrets? A million regrets. Who doesn't have regrets? Uh, he regretted that he couldn't form the university. I mean, that was, that was his deep dream. Uh, he regretted that. Um, what was he like at the end of his uh, at the end of his days? If you don't mind I wasn't me asking, with him. I he spent five years in Pakistan, and I I didn't see him. From what I heard, he lived pretty isolated, according to him. But I don't believe a word of that because he always had friends and people who gravitated towards him. Um, he spent some time in India. Uh, he believed firmly that Pakistan and India were one entity and that um, it never should have been divided. Uh, by the end of his life, he, he believed in that. And that went against the grain of nationalism in both India and in Pakistan. Um, and therefore, he spent a lot of time in India. He had many Indian friends, um, some of whom I met who were remarkable people. Um, and he was not happy about where Pakistan was going at the end of his life. Um, but he was helpless to do anything about it by then. Mm. Is there, I think my last question would be, is there anything you want to add for people listening that they should know about him? He was a mischievous fellow. I'll give you an example. Uh, this was absolutely hysterical. Um, I belong to the Jewish faith. And I took Ekbal and my other close friend from Princeton, Muhammad Gassus, to... Passover Seders, uh, which is the celebration of the Passover ceremony, uh, celebrating uh, the period when Jewish people escaped from Egypt and the tyranny of the Egyptians. And uh, Ekbal came to meet my family. And my family, being Jewish, could not... Uh, uh, deal with Muslims. They didn't know many Muslims at that point. Mm -hmm. But Iqbal was a charmer and he won them over and they loved him. Uh, but he was also mischievous. And in the middle of uh, soup, he screams out, Mao Zedong was a wonderful guy. This is 1950s, late 1950s. And for uh, people such as my relatives, Mao Zedong was a devil. He was uh, the devil incarnate. And anybody who spoke positively about Mao Zedong was equally a devil. So suddenly all my relatives popped up and they were all excited and very angry at Iqbal for defending Mao Zedong. But Iqbal didn't stop there. He went on for about 15 minutes soliloquy about why Mao Zedong was great. 
Now, I was the only one in the room knowing that Ekbal did not especially like Mao Zedong because Ekbal hated all dictators of any vintage whatsoever. Um, and he was a Democrat in the truest sense of the word. And he was doing this to provoke my family and to see their reactions and to stir them up. This was a period of post-McCarthyism where ordinary people were quite conservative. And he went on and on and on. And my family didn't know what to do with him. I mean, they were absolutely perplexed that this wonderful guy who had, they had fallen in love with had suddenly become an ogre. Uh-huh. And um, <clears throat> we left the place. We took a bus back to Princeton, and we were laughing uproariously. I mean, we were just hysterically uh, laughing because the whole thing was so ironic and so funny. I was the only one knowing that Ekbal was the truest Democrat in the room, that he hated tyranny of any sort, that he hated dictators of any sort, and that he was just provoking them to see what their reaction would be and to stir them up to start to get them thinking out of the box. Ekbal was always thinking out of the box, and he wanted other people to think out of the box as well. And what it did was provoke my family. Uh, they didn't know what to do with him. When I saw them later, they said they loved him, but they hated him at the same time. There was a mixed reaction that came out of it. And he did it to provoke and to stir them up and to get them thinking about what the heck their shibboleths were, what they were really holding on to that they had to think more profoundly about. It's been over 20 years now since he passed away. And I think it's important that we keep his memory alive because he was an important figure, both in America and in Pakistan and in India and in the subcontinent. He had many Bangladeshi friends, many Kashmiri friends, and he really believed in a united subcontinent uh, that would be a power unto itself. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for this. Thank you for everybody to join and listen. Thank you for your time. I really loved your book. Thanks, everyone. Anybody has any questions for Mr. Stewart? There are two editions of my book, Ekbal Ahmed, Critical Outsider in a Turbulent Age by Columbia University Press. And in Pakistan, it's published by Oxford University Press, Ekbal Ahmed, Critical Outsider and Witness in a Turbulent Age. And they're available from either publisher. Great. I uh, will edit this episode and I'll release it out and I'll definitely talk about your book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a goodbye, everybody. Have a, have a great day. And thank you, everybody, for being online with me. Thank Bye-bye. you, Stuart. Thank you.